All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 12th day of September 2017. I do want to remind you that I'm the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks newsletter. It's a weekly letter, also with a monthly Summary of the best of the weeks, and you can go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, to subscribe to that letter. Um, Certainly, we're having a lot more fun these days with gold doing relatively well, and the gold share is doing even better. Uh, Today, Novo Resources is finding its legs after some corrections, and it's uh, trading about $3.60 or so in U.S. money, doing extremely well. And I hope to have Quentin Henning on with me sometime in the near future to talk more about that. Uh, and what he's doing there in Australia. I, I um, want to encourage you also to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter. Chen is really hot again on Sorrento Therapeutics and Pan Orient Energy, and he uh, has induced me to buy some shares and make sure I have some in my portfolio. Uh, you might want to consider thinking about subscribing to Chen's letter. Go to chenpicks.com, chenpicks.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. Also, want to encourage you to send your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. The only reason we're able to talk to you and spend the time we spend to put this show together is because of them. New Range Gold Corp. RN Resources, Novo Resources, Genesis Metals, Osprey Gold Development, and Klondike Gold Corp. are this week's sponsors. I've titled today's show, Timing the Crash. Dan Oliver, Michael Oliver, no relationship as far as we know, and Robert Carrington return. Last week, Austrian economist uh, Dr. Mark Thornton told us that Austrian economics does not provide a theory about when central bank-created bubbles will implode. That they will is no doubt but the timing is very much a problem. To an extent, technical analyst Michael Oliver, who will be with me uh, in momentarily, disregre- disagreed with that, in fact, and his track record suggests that you may not be able to pick the exact top or bottom of a market, but Michael's proprietary structure and momentum tools seem to have worked exceptionally well for him and his subscribers, and uh, that's why he's on this show almost every week. I would strongly suggest you go to OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com, and you can click on a uh, link there right at the top of the page to request a sample of his work. Well, from my perspective, it's quite simple. 
I want to know if I'm in a significant bull market or a significant bear market. I'm willing to allow for some ups and downs along the way, but what is the trend? Am I going uh, lower left to upper right or upper left to lower right? I want to know that. And Michael has been extremely good in helping me feel secure about the position I'm taking with any given market. So um, Dan Oliver uh, will be with me in the second half of today's show. Uh, to discuss anecdotal evidence that the end of this credit-induced bull market in stocks and bonds is, in fact, well, at least he believes it is, in fact, nearing its end. And he will suggest uh, what you should do to limit the carnage that is sure to follow uh, during the impending bust. And then uh, right after we finish talking to Michael, who I'm going to say hello to in just a moment, Robert Carrington uh, will update us on the program uh, that is being the drill program that is being put into effect by New Range Gold Corp. And they seem to be on to a very exciting new gold discovery uh, in Nevada. Anyway, right now, Michael's with us. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Good to be back, Jay. Always good to have you. And I might, you know, again, Momentum Structural anal- Analysis. That's MSA, OliverMSA.com. I'm looking right at the website now. And if you go there, in, right near the top, contact, or uh, yes, it's contact, sample reports. Click on that, name and email, and Michael will send you a sample of his work so you can get a sense of why he's so good and why I have him on this show all the time. Actually, if you just have followed this man over the last couple of years since I've had him on my show, you will recognize uh, that he really does provide security in terms of understanding whether you're on the right side of a market or not. So, Michael, um, the federal government and governors of the states of Texas and Florida, they've assured us that there's, they're not going to spare any spending to try to fix everything up again and uh, save lives. Okay, well, you can sort of say, well, that's a good thing, I suppose. But um, the markets seem to believe that, well, you know, when the first hurricane come along, oh, well, we're just going to spend endless amounts of money. Fed has to ease up, lower interest rates in the stock market, and gold did very well and so forth. Now the Fed's come out basically and saying, no, 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 don't get that idea. We're not going to, we're going to keep raising rates. We have to keep raising rates. We're going to normalize. The economy's doing very well and all that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so is, wh- what is your take on this thing? I mean, do you, see the, do you see the Fed being able to turn things around? I mean, do you see, what are your thoughts on this, Michael? What are the markets telling you about interest rates and the stock market? Well, I think the stock market is, uh, we had a report this weekend, uh, or just the other day, called Deja Vu. And <laughs> I explained that there's two kinds of tops. There's the instant kill top, and there's the arduous top. Most mm-hmm. tops are arduous, especially in the stock market. And even in gold, for example, 2011 top didn't break down until 2013. Okay. Yep. Uh, the, uh, I think gold, for example, is out of the arduous process and now in, in, in motion for the a strong second up leg here. The, mm-hmm. the last year and a half since last February, that it's been base building, proving it made a higher low, and now, now emerging. The only halt in gold right now is a simple, uh, you can do it with a crayon across weekly and monthly highs of the last couple of years. They're selling it there. Momentum is already out above this level, so I wouldn't regard it except as a temporary hurdle. Stocks. S&P 500 has done damage to itself in the last month in that recent down move, which in price terms wasn't that serious. We've had a lot more serious sell-offs in the last year and a half 
uh, more serious than that one. But that one broke some things of, of a long-term nature. Not enough for me to say, okay, it's over here. Right now it's done. It's going down here. I don't think the stock market is going to produce serious decline, the kind mm-hmm. that the public sits up and notices until next year. Mm-hmm. I think that between now and the year end, we're going to have more confusion, more arduousness in terms of which way is it going? Is it still mm-hmm. up? Is it, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I think the key factor here is going to be an ambush from the interest rate markets. And I mean the government debt markets, not the high mm-hmm. yield stuff that frequently mm-hmm. you know, has bursts and sells off. Sure. Uh, T-bonds, I think, have already topped. I think yields are going much higher. The current rally in T-bonds in the U.S. and lower yields uh, marginally uh, over the last six months is a counter-trend rally. What I'm watching more importantly is the JGBs, the government, Japanese government bonds, they also have futures, and the German bunds, 10-year German bonds. Both of those debt markets, you know, major Western government debt markets, have the kind of annual momentum topping patterns that scare me, they're, well, or, or you know, could enrich you, uh, and they're fully justified because, you know, if there's been a bubble, the biggest bubble of all, other government debt markets, where they sure. take yields in Germany and Japan is under zero for a while, and mm-hmm. Japan's still there. It's ridiculous. It's off-the-page bubble. When it breaks, and I don't care what the central banks say or do, I really don't care about their policy statements, the market will grab those markets by the ankles and take them where they need to go. And the structures that I see on annual momentum of the JGBs and the bonds say, you're doomed, you're not going to hold above these structures for much longer. I think that for sure they will break down, meaning rates will begin to rise in those two countries in a marked way, publicly recognizable way, next year. And I think that is the big wave that really hits the stock markets, is when rates start to rise regardless of central bank statements or policy. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the market you know, will be nature, in control. Nature huh? takes over. Yeah, where nature takes over. Yeah, the market uh, so will be in control. Point, I, think yeah. the, I think the commodities, the, the 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 laying in the weeds, commodities like the grains, uh, to some extent, oil, are going to come back big time, and I suspect that comes early next year. That they could also be in an arduous process of sideways type of behavior between now and the end of the year. But don't let okay. that seemingly go to sleep tone fool you. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, Michael, uh, Dan Oliver is going to be with us later in the day, and I expect to ask him, uh, you know, he noted that in 2008, during the crash, uh, we saw a 30% decline in the price of gold immediately because people Mm -hmm. sell what they have to sell to be able to pay the margin clerks when they get their margin calls. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, gold rose very dramatically. Now, he thinks this time it could be different, and he gives his reasons. We'll Mm -hmm. talk to him about that. But uh, so, do you see any danger for gold right now? I mean, you you seem no, to be uh, turning very bullish on it. So even if the Fed continues to raise rates here, you don't see any problem with that. No, I, I think there's an asset class shift. Gold usually leads those, both downside and upside. Uh, yeah. I think that the to the 2011 peak in gold and the sharp sell-off that followed. Remember, the S&P had a sharp sell-off as well into late mm-hmm. 2011. Then yeah. they divorced ways. But from two uh, from for many years there, up to the 2011 peak, stocks and gold moved together. Gold mm-hmm. outproduced stocks. It did better holding gold from the, like the 2009 low when we had a sharp sell-off in 2009, 2008 yeah. in gold along with stocks. Mm-hmm. They were moving in sync. Gold was outperforming. Yeah. That outperform trend ended in 2011, and they separated not just in performance but in net trend direction. 
I think they are separated. I think gold turning up is a sign that stocks are going to top. And I think there will be an opposite net trend directions. Uh, and that, that if, if a stock sell-off occurs, I don't think gold will suffer because of it. I think it will be viewed as an alternative place to be uh, and not, not a sympathetic market. All right. Uh, just one quick uh, in 30 seconds or a minute at most here, Michael. What about oil? You did some work on your mm-hmm. weekend uh, on your weekend report about oil, oil was sort of, um, well, where does it stand in the commodity complex okay. overall? It, it, has, it had been strong uh, coming off its $26 low in, in uh, 2016 and ran up to 54 So a nice first leg up. Most of this year has been down. We dropped from 54 down to 42 area. Now we're 48 and leveled off. I have some things that if you can get back up to about 50 uh, on a weekly close, you could, you could launch on up to 60. But I'm beginning to wonder whether or not it's going to wait till next year because oil has a unique annual situation that says if it just lays in the weeds here huh. and you find that oil is where it is right now come January the 2nd, whenever we start trading futures next year, annual momentum is going to blow its cork. Hmm. Uh, and it's, it's a well-defined structure. And it, it, frankly, if I were a bull at oil, I would like it to go to sleep. I would mm-hmm. also like the grains to go to sleep. Just go sideways, twist and turn between now and January. Because if you do, uh, when you look at the annual momentum charts, forget the price charts. You see something totally different. And it says when you get to 2018 and the three-year average changes, the structures of momentum are going to blow through tops. Mm. The top of bases, in other words, and mm. a sharp bull trend should emerge. So that's why I'm beginning to think most of the action that everybody's looking for is pending, and it's going to unleash in early 2018. All right. Well, we'll have to keep up with you. Hopefully, you'll be around to help us, Michael, yep. to, uh, to to sort of see see what's coming. Uh, you certainly, with your momentum, usually are ahead of the prices, and uh, very remarkably. Uh, correct on almost everything I've seen from you. So thanks again, Michael, for being with us. Thank you. We'll look forward to talking to you again next week, if possible. All right, folks. Well, uh, don't go away. Robert Carrington's coming to us now after the break. And uh, New Range Gold Corp has uh, some spectacular gold assays that they've reported, and they're starting their phase two drill program. We want to find out, uh, you know, what the upside is here with Robert Carrington's company, New Range Gold Corp. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay Project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project, located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest-grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. 
well-financed with no debt. New ranges unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX, symbol NRG. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to have with me for a second time Robert Carrington. He's the president and CEO of New Range Gold Corp. And New Range trades in Toronto under the symbol NRG. You can buy it down here in the U.S. as I have under the symbol CMBPF, CMBPF, 65.2 million shares outstanding. Earlier today, when I checked it, it was at 41 cents in U.S. money, giving it a market cap of around 27 million. The company's primarily exploration, its primary exploration uh, project is the Pamlico Gold Project near Hawthorne, Nevada, uh, located in the Walker Lane Gold Trend. And uh, I added this company to my newsletter back on April 28th at 23 cents. So we've had a good run already. So the big question in my mind, as an owner of this share of these shares, is, uh, you know, where to from now? Uh, from this point forward. So, thanks for joining me again, Robert. Jay, thanks for having me today. So, that's the question I have on my mind. Uh, should I buy this stock now? Should I dump it? I mean, I've had a big run. Uh, or are we just seeing the beginning of something? And I guess, certainly, I mean, what excited me were some some really blockbuster uh, headline numbers on drill results and, and channel samples and so forth earlier on. So, uh, for the sake of those who may not have heard you the first time back on August 22nd when you were with me, uh, tell us again what, what attracted you to the Pamlico Gold Project. Well, the, the Pamlico property is located in the central portion of the Walker Lane, which is one of the uh, truly one of the world's largest gold trends. Um, it's one of the three big gold trends in Nevada, uh, alongside of the Carlin and the Battle Mountain trend. Um, the Pamlico property sits, as I said, centrally in the Walker Lane near the intersection of the uh, uh, Pancake Range Liniment with the Walker Lane. Some of the, uh, the major mines along the Walker Lane include the Comstock Load, uh, Goldfield, Tonopah, uh, and a, a host of others. Other mines along the, uh, the Pancake Range Liniment include Bodie, California, Aurora, Nevada, Borealis, mm-hmm. uh, the Pediment. Uh, and, of course, Round Mountain, mm-hmm. which sits there with 22 million ounces of past production plus current reserves. The uh, geology at uh, Pamlico is uh, somewhat similar, actually, to Round Mountain. Uh, both of them are volcanic-hosted epithermal gold systems with uh, low-grade disseminated mineralization that is, uh, in turn, cut by extremely high-grade uh, uh, mineralization, multiple ounce uh, gold intercepts. Of course, that's what's given rise to the, the spectacular intercepts that you referred to just now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, uh, yeah. Going forward, 
The uh, drilling program, the Phase 2 drilling program, will kick off tomorrow. The drill rig is on site. The crews are currently assembling all of the equipment and everything. We uh, will be drilling by this time tomorrow, and we're going to be focusing on the area around uh, the R-holes 8 and 10, the Merritt decline and then the Merritt high-grade zone. There's quite a bit, actually, of unexplored ground in there, and our structural interpretation indicates that there should be additional mineralization in that. It uh, should be a very exciting program. We're starting to see a fairly cohesive body of mineralization related to uh, low-angle structures that are being penetrated by high-angle northwest trending structures that are, mm. in general, related to the, uh, the Walker Lane. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're really focusing on this area because we know a lot about it, but certainly by no means everything. We plan on using this as a, a guide so that we can build a predictive model to go evaluate the, uh, the many other volcanic-hosted targets on this, uh, this very large property. Right now, Pamlico is about 20, a little over 2,200 hectares. Hmm. It uh, uh, covers both volcanic-hosted mineralization and uh, sediment-hosted uh, gold mineralization. We're focusing on the, uh, the volcanic-hosted mineralization right now because we see some extremely promising grades. It's, uh, uh, multiple-ounce gold is not uncommon in the, uh, the system at, uh, at Pamlico. And uh, we believe that, uh, that grade can cover a myriad of sins, and obviously a lot of the high-grade stories are the ones leading the way out of the, uh, the doldrum of the last few years. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds to me like you have prospects for some really high-grade stuff and then maybe some lower-grade dissemination in between the higher-grade uh, intervals, yeah. possibly? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely what we're looking at. Okay. Um, you added some claims, 111 new claims, actually, on, on June 26th. So that, was that more, does that have to do with the possible extension of mineralization? And, and uh, if so, can you give our listeners an idea of what the size of the target is that you're looking at, at least as far as you know at this stage? Well, the, the target that we're looking at there is actually, it's a, uh, there's two targets. Mm-hmm. One is, of course, an extension of the sediment-hosted mineralization that we've seen uh, elsewhere on the property. The sediment-hosted mineralization lines up along a northwest trending structural zone where we see a lot of uh, jasperoid silica replacing uh, carbonate sediments. And typically, we're seeing gold mineralization along that trend in the range of uh, a half a gram to as high as five grams gold. Mm-hmm. We uh, we just we, we acquired those claims to protect ourselves, uh, as I said in the one news release, to give us room to move. And then there's uh, the airborne magnetometry uh, that we just completed. We haven't don't even have a uh, full interpretation of it yet. Uh, suggests that there may be a porphyry system at mm-hmm. depth under the uh, the property. Now the porphyry itself may not be economic, but uh, many of the porphyry systems do have epithermal uh, gold systems and sediment-hosted style systems associated with them. So as that picture started to uh, uh, come together, we wanted to make extra sure that we had all the ground that we really wanted around us. We didn't want to uh, 
suddenly wake up one morning and realize we had a neighbor that had the ground we should have had. Yeah, indeed. Smart move then, for sure. Um, Just to let our listeners know, just just to mention some of these high-grade intercepts that were reported, uh, on June 19th, uh, you reported 6.1 meters grading 97, almost 98 grams per ton. Uh, and on Jul- July 5th, you reported 4.6 meters, grading 43.8 grams of gold per ton. And then a channel sample earlier than that, that was 104.75 grams per ton over 1.5 meters. I guess, you know, those are spectacular, no question about it. But it, it's always a question of continuity, isn't it, Robert? And, you know, I guess that's what, that's, I mean, you just started, when did you start exploring this project? I, it had some work done on it before, for sure, but when did you start with new range on it. Well, okay, I I first started looking at the property around 2009-2010 with the the prior owner. Uh-huh. Uh he was a friend of my father's and mm-hmm. had always uh wanted to have his own mine and he uh had been very successful in the construction industry. So he pulled about uh 3 almost 4 million dollars out of his hip pocket and executed a uh very sizable drilling program and then turned around and developed a uh, 600-foot uh, decline with all the infrastructure on the property. Unfortunately, his health uh, uh, failed due to a uh, uh, medical procedure he had to have done, mm-hmm. and he, he ultimately passed away. And We were able to, uh, to acquire the, uh, the property uh, just before his passing. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been in touch with them periodically during the uh, uh, time when they were drilling and developing the decline, so I knew what was going on. And when the property came on the market, we were able to execute uh, quite rapidly uh, since a lot of the classic due diligence had already been done inadvertently. I, uh, uh, we we uh, signed the property, as you know, in July of uh, 2016. Mm-hmm. And so our our real physical efforts on the property started uh, shortly after that. We started uh, compiling all the old data, uh, remapped the or actually mapped the decline in detail for the first time, and subsequently did the uh, socket channel sampling. Uh, and that was the first time the decline had ever even been sampled. Hmm. Those uh, fairly spectacular high grade socket channel samples that we announced were the first time that decline had ever been sampled systematically. Oh. <laughs> wow. Uh, and were you seeing were you were you seeing evidence of dissemination there as well? There is the uh decline contains a, a about a 75 meter interval uh in there that will average a pr- uh, two and a half to 3 grams gold. Mhm. So the our our low grade dissemination isn't as low grade as most people's low grade we mm-hmm. uh, we benefit substantially from a, a lot of stockwork style mineralization in a a very favorable volcanic host rock. So, Robert, what do you expect to achieve with this drill program, Phase Two? What what do you expect to to accomplish with that? And how soon might we see some results coming from that? Some assays. Uh, the fa- Phase Two program, as I say, will start uh, tomorrow. The uh, assay labs are kind of backed up right now, so it'll probably be about a 20-day turnaround uh, to get mm-hmm. uh, our first assays back. And then once that starts, we'll see a fairly steady stream of, of assays. We're uh, 
uh, hi- highlights of this program or uh, key objectives are to explore for additional uh, mineralization in and around the uh, the area of uh, the decline, our holes 810 and the, the area in between all that. Uh, importantly, we're also going to drill at least two deep stratigraphic test holes. These holes are specifically designed to test for additional units of favorable volcanic uh, rock mm-hmm. at depth. There are more and less favorable units on the uh, on the property, and what we're what we're lo- hoping to do is identify another uh, favorable uh, unit that will host similar mineralization to uh, that that we've announced in our Phase One program. The the stratigraphic test holes may not uh, necessarily hit mineralization in that unit because we really don't know how deep that unit will be. But mm-hmm. as we get a better handle on where that unit might be depth-wise, then we can start targeting many of the structures that we're already hitting and projecting them down to uh, to come up with additional uh, ounces in a another favorable horizon. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's certainly, I guess, it's, it's going to take quite a bit of work to get a sense of the, uh, you know, the extent of mineralization, uh, continuity of it, as well as the uh, geometry, the shape of, of, the, of the deposit, and so forth. Um, well, it, what, uh, go ahead. It is, but one, one, of, one of the reasons we're focusing on this so, so intensely is we, we more or less know what we're doing. Uh, here, we uh, by focusing on this, we're going to develop a very detailed predictive model that we can then take to other parts of the property. There, there are at least five very, very similar uh, centers of mineralization elsewhere on the uh, the Pamlico property. And rather than go out and just wildly wing drill holes around like uh, some other people have done on the property, by focusing on this. We can then take that predictive model and accomplish uh, the same same results with a lot less drilling and a lot lower expense. Yeah. Well, so I, I guess uh, probably in a in a month, a couple of months or so, we should start to get some feedback from this drill program, right? Yes, I would. I would hope that within uh, twenty to twenty five days, we'll start seeing. Uh, seen some feedback and we'll we'll be announcing the results as they as they come out how well funded are you robert to take you through this and then are you going to need to raise some money next year we'll uh almost certainly raise money next year uh, we're well enough funded this year we can we we have uh a million dollars in the treasury right now and we have the ability to uh, to bring in uh, roughly two million more without any uh, any trouble these uh, you, these are relatively shallow holes, except you did mention you're doing some deep holes. How deep would they be? And how many meters uh, do you expect to drill in phase two? Yeah, the two deeper stratigraphic test holes will probably be about 1,500 feet. Wow, okay, wow. So, yeah, you're, so they're, they're moderately deep holes. Um, mm-hmm. The, you know, key things that we're looking for, you know, we're obviously going to try and spot those holes so they will serve as a good exploration hole in the shallow near surface zone where we see all of the current gold. It will hopefully identify other favorable uh, stratigraphic horizons in the, the volcanic pile there. 
and the uh, holes are designed to be deep enough to test the, the redox boundary. In other words, the boundary between the zone of oxidation and uh, unoxidized material. Mm-hmm. And in Pamlico, mm-hmm. we're, we're blessed with a very deep zone of oxidation. Mm. Good. Where yeah. uh, it seems that uh, the uh, oxidation level goes down to about uh, between seven and 900 feet. Wow. That, that so, uh, so. possibilities for some significant open pitting then. Possibly. Yes. Uh-huh. Very, very high. Very strong possibilities of open pitting. Um, every, everything that I am seeing in the mineralization suggests that it should be amenable to, uh, to heap, uh, heap leaching uh, for the mm-hmm. disseminated mineralization. There's, of course, no carbon in the, uh, the volcanic units. And yeah. very importantly, there's almost no silica in the system. So there's virtually no, no potential for silica encapsulation in the system, which is a an extremely uh, enviable position to be in. Sure. Many sure. many systems have problems with silicon encapsulation. Sure, indeed. Well, metallurgy is always a key, and uh, that you'll learn more about, but it sounds good at this point. Robert, this is a very exciting project, no doubt about it. $27 million, U.S. million dollar market cap. Uh, this is a baby company. If you're really onto something significant here, uh, in a bull market, it's hard to see how these shares don't go much higher. That's my view. That's why I own them. That's why they're in my newsletter. Anything else you'd like to add today before we conclude our discussion? Well, yes. We just we've just this last week finished the uh, gravity survey, the air mag survey, and the airborne radiometric survey. All of those are currently being modeled. We'll we'll announce the results of that as we get it. But that is going to help us target the larger district scale potential on the on the property. Mm-hmm. And so you'll you'll see us starting to uh, step out into some of these newer and uh, more distant target areas that I uh, that I've mentioned. So uh, I think I think we'll see a lot more exploration going on and getting very aggressive over the next uh, uh, months and the next year, especially if if everything goes very well, we might be in a position to initiate a uh, uh, resource estimate by year end. Oh, terrific. All right. Well, it really is an exciting story. Thanks so much for being with us again, Robert, and uh, we'll look to keep up with you going forward. Okay, Jay, thank you very much. Have a good day. All the best. All right, you too. And uh, folks, uh, commercial time. Don't go away, though, because Dan Oliver is coming back with us, and uh, he's going to talk to us about timing the next market crash. How can we know? How can we discern when we're nearing the end of an eight-year bull market that's going on stronger and stronger, it seems, money being thrown into the market like mad, stocks continue to rise. Some people think it will never end. Dan Oliver is here to tell us, yes, it will. But when? Stay tuned. We'll find out from Dan. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently upgrading and expanding on its resources to produce an economic study in Q3 2017. 
followed by construction in Q1 2018. Novo enjoys a strong balance sheet and supportive shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSRPF, respectively. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corp. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again, Dan Oliver. Uh, thanks for joining me again today, Dan. Thanks for having me. Always good to have you with me, and um, I want you, before we get into this uh, topic of the day, timing the crash, talk a little bit about the uh, Committee for Monetary Research and Education, or CMRE for short, its purpose, and uh, tell us a little bit about the upcoming meeting that's uh, occurring on October 3rd. Sure, yeah. The CMRE was founded in 1970 by Henry Hazlitt and, and fellow traveler Jacques Gareff was involved, a bunch of the real Triffin, uh, of all stripes, who basically in opposition to the Bretton Woods Monetary Agreement. They, they saw as early as 1970, before Nixon took us off the gold standard, that the monetary mechanism was, mechanism was going to collapse, and they warned about it, of course. At first, they were uh, uh, very much outliers, and then all the things they predicted happened over the 70s as the dollar collapsed and gold uh, uh, soared. And so in the 70s, it was quite influential, full of uh, Fed governors and, and heads of banks, people who really understood the gold standard and, and wanted to go back to it. Uh, of course, that's not completely anachronistic. We don't often get Fed governors coming to argue in favor of the gold standard these days. But, uh, but, but the organization persists, and the event we're having in New York City on October 3rd, I, I think is very interesting. It's going to be on uh, cryptocurrencies, and we have uh, Joe Lubin, who's one of the co-founders of Ethereum, which is the second largest mm-hmm. cryptocurrency coming. We have uh, George Gilder coming. We have Larry White coming. And, and, and what the focus of the meeting is going to be about is not so much the question that I think most hard money folks ask themselves, which is, uh, which is better, gold or Bitcoin? Is Bitcoin the new gold? Because uh, that, what that presumes is, uh, where do you put your savings? Do you want to keep your life savings in gold and Bitcoin? And I certainly have my own views uh, on that. But I think the more interesting question is um, transactional. The, the original function of banks, if we go all the way back to uh, medieval Europe, 
was to settle commercial transactions. Uh, 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 a different uh, change of production, different merchants would pay each other not in silver, because silver was very scarce and, and was also dangerous to transport, or brigands and tax collectors, all sorts of things. That they would they would pay each other in uh, in IOUs and commercial bills, and these bills would circulate in the economy, and the banks would settle them. Uh, that that is the the proper function of banks, not not to finance assets, but to settle commercial credit. And, and what really interests me about uh, these cryptocurrencies is, and especially Ethereum, is the idea of the, of the smart contract, which essentially take the bank out of the equation. So uh, if, if one company orders widgets from another company, uh, when the widgets arrive, uh, uh, the settlement happens automatically. And, and what this raises the potential of doing is essentially disaggregating the banks from, from commerce. And, and I think that is a much bigger story, much bigger possibility uh, than than uh, the most conversations about this topic involved with now again the commercial bills in the middle ages uh, matured into gold whereas the sure. ones mature into cryptocurrency so I think that's that's an issue that needs to be addressed and it's 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 not to have any conclusions at the meeting it's to, it's to get people who really know this stuff to come and talk about it and, and get different viewpoints on on these matters so I think it'll be uh, a fascinating evening, and again, attacking what I think is a much more interesting opportunity than than usually gets gets aired in, in these conversations. All right, Dan, for people who are listening that might be able, living in the New York City area or so, to attend, how do they go about doing so? Yeah, well, uh, seating is limited, but we still have seats available, and they just go to the website, cmre.org, and uh, there's a link right there to buy tickets, and we still we still have some, some seats available. All right, great. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm uh, certainly... Uh, looking for a resumption of uh, of the meetings from the CMRE meetings. We missed them. There's been a little bit of a, of a lull here. Now that you've taken over, I'm really happy to see it uh, back on track. Well, I, I do want to you know get into the topic of today. I've actually uh, I've actually titled today's show "Timing the Crash" after your excellent article that you wrote here on October. I mean uh, August 15th, I believe it was. Uh, Timing the crash. Um, you know, you, you, what makes you think that there will be a crash, uh, Dan? You know, I mean, uh, certainly if you were to, most people probably, they continue throwing their money into the stock market. Um, they seem to be oblivious and there seems to be growing confidence as there always is uh, when you have year after year of bull markets. Uh, tell us what, what, what leads you to believe that this thing can't go on forever. Well, I, I guess it's a matter of perspective. You know, if, if the, the way the Fed views the world, uh, uh, the, the economy uh, by its nature uh, does not tend towards equilibrium. It tends to be chaotic. And so you need a wise and powerful central bank <laughs> to keep things on, on, you know, on an even keel. And, and, you know, Janet Yellen gave an absurd speech a couple of years ago where she said, look, we, we've gotten better at it. We've learned. You know, look, we managed to conquer the 87 crash, and then we, yeah. we, we, then we you know, contained the SNL crisis, and then the internet bubble. Like, we had all these tools we use, and guess even even the housing bubble, the biggest one of all. You know, we, we were able to QEs and all these programs. We solved it. So we're getting better and better at solving these problems. And it's, 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 so, it's so absurd because, of course, it's the Fed that's causing these problems, and they're causing them by, by keeping the economy – in an artificial state, the, the the economy does tend towards equilibrium in a free market. The problem is that we haven't had a free market in money, in interest rates, uh, uh, for for at least 100 years, and in some in some sense, 200 years. 
and, and so because the Fed manipulates the currency system, it naturally blows these bubbles. And it's not just the Fed, it's the banking system. And that's one of the points of the, points of the piece I, I wrote. You know, there, there were big bubbles and crashes in the 19th century before the central bank. So obviously the Fed isn't causing it, but, but what causes it is uh, the fraction of the banking system, which we've had, has been around for a couple hundred years. And, and the, the good thing with the 19th century is that, yes, there were more panics, but they were smaller. And so the mm-hmm. economy didn't get too far off track for too long because uh, everything would liquefy and it was very unpleasant living through it, to be sure. But uh, within, you know, there, there was no stabilization so that uh, uh, values returned to where they should be. Everyone picked up and moved on, which is why the century is so productive. And in the 20th century and now in the 21st, we have this, this central bank managing the situation. And, and so they, they try to keep the economy at, at, at an incorrect price level, interest rates at an incorrect level for as long as they can. Uh, and so it does make the crashes less frequent, but it also makes them much, much worse. Oh. Um, and, and, so, and that's what's happening. So, so it's, it's, the, it's the nature of the bank system to blow these bubbles, and it's the nature of the Fed to resist the popping, and that's what they're doing. So if you, again, if you look back at that, at that history the last couple hundred years, uh, you see a very clear pattern, which is that uh, what, what these fraction of banks do is they create credit. They don't allocate credit. That's, of course, the dirty seeking of banking. They, they don't take your savings and give it to some needy person yeah. who's going to use them. They, they, they take your savings and multiply them. Uh, and take your overnight money because it's deposits overnight, and they lend it to some other guy at 30 years, you know, at, at 10 times the amount. So, <laughs> so it creates too much credit, uh, artificial credit, pushes down interest rates. This is the natural thing that happens. So, you see, what you generally see is very gradually uh, falling interest rates over over uh, a period of time as this process happens, and then you get more and more asset inflation uh, as this money goes into assets. And and then uh, in the, in the in the 19th century, what happened is. Uh, all, all of a sudden, because interest rates were so low, savers would take their money out of the bank. Say, hey, it's, not, it's just not worth it for me to have my money sure. in the bank. I can self-invest or do something else. And so rates would climb, and the higher rates would devalue these malinvestments, and, you, and you'd have a big banking crisis. Uh, in, in modern times, what happens is that the Fed sees the asset inflation. Their, their self-described job is to take away the punch bowl, right? So they start raising rates willingly, uh, not because they want to end the boom. They like the boom because in the boom, tax revenue goes higher and the government likes that so they, they don't want to end, but they do they want to you know control it so they raise rates and then inevitably you see uh, you know within a couple of years or maybe within a few years uh, a big crash and the part of my article is you, you go back and look at the major episodes of the last 200 years and you see the exact same pattern which is that once rates start to rise uh, it tells you that the credit cycle has peaked and it's ending and the crash will come soon now t- to be very clear often in that first rising of the rates, uh, uh, prices go crazy. So the, the Fed in 1928 got spooked and they started raising rates in, in Q1 of 1928. Uh, and they raised rates through September of 1929. And, and during that year and a half, the reason they kept raising rates is because the stock market kept going crazy. It kept going <laughs> higher higher and faster and faster. So they raised rates more and more to try to contain it. And, and thinking, you know, they were facing the market higher, which they were. And all of a sudden, the rates hit an amount where basically people's cash flows dissipate. If you have too much debt Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. rates go up, now all of a sudden you're paying more on your student loans and your car payments and your mortgage Mm -hmm. payments and your credit card payments. And so now your your cash disappears. And so 
uh, and so the whole thing uh, collapses, which is what happened in 1929. And so, and the same thing happened to Bernanke, right? He started raising rates, I think, in 2004 for three years, and, the, and that was the really hot time of the market of the housing bubble, those three years of rising rates. But then one day, the rates hit a level that the uh, bubble just couldn't sustain, and we popped very suddenly. So I, I think it's no surprise that Fed's been raising rates now for about 20 months, and, and during that time, the market's gone higher and higher at a faster and faster pace, and this is entirely consistent with what's happened before. Uh, but there's a level at which the rates will, will hit, that the whole uh, system will lock up. And, and if you look back at the last uh, 30 years in this, in this sort of mega cycle we've been in, the, the rate at which... The, the height to which rates have to go to tank the system gets lower and lower because yeah. the debt burden gets higher and higher. So it, it's not that rates have to go back to where they were in 2007 to, to tank the market. They just have to go back to higher than whatever number it is. And it's not easy to know what the number is because the economy is a very complex, chaotic system. But, uh, but there's a number at which the cash flow gets interrupted to the extent that the whole credit cycle goes in reverse. And I think you know we're, we, it, it's, it's been 20 months when you look back again, you know these things tend to take, I don't know, two, two to four years, and so we're sort of on the cusp of of when it could crash. Maybe it could last in a year or two. Um, but there's another thing that happened, which I think is very interesting, and that is gold been rising uh, through the end of the summer, and then all of a sudden, when Houston got washed away, gold had a nice pop, right? Yes. And, and I, I was very interested in that because my, my next letter I think is about this. It, it was the destruction of San Francisco, 1906 that prompted the panic of 1907. Mm. What happened was, when 80% of the city was leveled, uh, within a few months, 15% of England's gold supply had sailed across the Atlantic to settle insurance claims. And mm. so the Bank of England had to raise rates to prevent more gold from leaving England. And on top of that, people who lost their houses, obviously, had to take their savings out of the bank system to rebuild. So there was huge pressure on, on, on the banks. And, uh, and then within a year, the banking, uh, the co- collapse of 1907 happened, which ironically prompted the creation of the Federal Reserve. Yeah. And so I, I think it's historically interesting that here we are at the peak of a credit cycle, the largest the world's ever seen. And we had the fourth largest city by GDP uh, in, in the U.S. washed away in a storm. Uh, and they almost lost Florida, too. That would have been interesting because that's actually happened to the Florida boom. And I think it was 1925, the hurricane came and flattened half the state. And and and. and the, the Fed actually lowered rates after that to keep that boom going, which also helped contribute to to the phenomenal rise at the late of the 1920s. But but so so here we are with again these these people in Houston who have insurance claims. They have just the people who aren't insured are going to have to liquidate mm-hmm. their financial assets to try to rebuild. In fact, I saw apparently Congress is considering a bill to allow people to sell. Uh, uh, securities out of their 401ks tax-free to pay for rebuilding, which is great, mm. but it means you know if that passes, you'll have lots of sellers of assets to, mm-hmm. to rebuild. So again, I mean, is Houston big enough? It's not. I don't think Houston is big as San Francisco was in 1906. On the other hand, we have massive more levers than we had then. So it's it's hard to get precise, uh, too precise on, on on these macro trends that last decades. But but the but the point is that we, we're we're in a rising rate cycle now, usually that at first creates strongly rising, rising asset prices, and then you hit a point at which the whole thing uh, uh, um, collapses. Right. Dan, um, w- with all these demands now from Florida and from Houston, from you know southeastern Texas, the, the carnage, the rebuilding, and so on and so forth, you would think that would, try, that would probably uh, cause the Fed to be even easier to, to maybe not raise rates as rapidly as 
as they intended to, and yet, and I thought maybe that's one of the reasons that the market, the gold market, showed some strength after Houston, and then uh, the Fed came out. I think yesterday or somebody at the Fed came out and said, "No, no, no, we're gonna, we're gonna raise just as we had planned to before." To what extent do you think the Fed is in charge, or the Fed is in control of this, or are they reacting to market forces? Well, again, I think it's a little bit of both. I think what what I, I don't agree with the, the more conspiracy minded as the Fed that causes these bubbles. Again, we know that because they happened in the nineteenth century, and the Fed wasn't around. The, the Fed's function is contain the, the bust when, when it happens. That was the original function, and it still serves that function. Again, that's a very bad thing to do, but as is in fact what it does. So, I, I think the stresses in the economy are, are such that the Fed is generally uh, uh, led uh, by the market, but then. It can and does push back strenuously, as it did in 2008 and 9, when it suspended market market accounting, when it guaranteed seven trillion dollars of assets the f- first few months, when it had the QE program. So it it can it can definitely uh, influence things, but uh, but in and of itself, I don't think it's powerful enough to stop these enormous forces that cause uh, overbuilding in 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 you know largest in assets, overcapacity, falling prices, and the bust. I mean that is a a, uh, a cycle has been happening for thousands of years, not hundreds. And, and the Fed, again, I think has the ability to accentuate those things, but they certainly can't stop them. Dan, there's no question in your mind that we're going to have uh, a major decline in the equity markets. I believe I'm safe in saying that. How do you think? Oh, that on, it, on a real basis, Jay. Let, let's be careful. Huh? I mean, okay. you know, it, Weimar Germany was a credit collapse. It just yes. was a hyperinflationary <laughs> one. So, I mean, yeah. yeah in nominal terms, terms gold, it went, uh, the market went yeah. higher. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, yes, the equity markets will go down. You know, uh, my, again, historically, you know, a 90% decline in terms of gold is, is, is what happens. I mean, that, that happened certainly in the 30s nominally. It also happened in the 70s. Uh, in gold terms, people didn't notice it because it, it, the nominal price didn't go down that much. In fact, they went up most of the decade. But, but the point is, yes, I mean, equity prices, real estate prices, all those heavily levered assets will go down in the final crash by magnitudes of 90, 95%. Well, you, uh, it, your article outlines a whole list of, of uh, sectors in our economy that are almost in a depression state. Uh, the, the retail sector, the housing sector is in trouble, the, you know, lots and lots of things. Yet the stock market... Stock market continues to go up. But Dan, with just two minutes left here, I've got to ask you, though, how do you think gold will fare when this market declines, when the equity market declines? Yeah, well, that, that's a great question. In 2008, what happened was you get, you get or normally you get a short squeeze in currency and so people dump all their assets, including gold, because uh, if you don't have uh, cash, you don't pay your debts, you lose your collateral. So, so gold got hit initially, and the second lien was our team teetering, then gold got a huge hit, right? And then the QE happened, off it went. I, I, my own view is I, I don't know that gold goes up directly when the crash happens. It seems to be behaving pretty much in lockstep in opposition to the stock market, which can be some confidence it does. I think it could go down. I don't really know. But, but what I do strongly suspect is everyone's seen the movie recently. So even if it goes down initially, and again, I don't know that it does, but it certainly might, uh, everyone knows what comes next, which is huge intervention by central banks, uh, tanking the currency and gold going higher. So, I th- so that, that process will happen at a much more rapid rate than it did last time. So even gold gets hit, I think uh, it'll go up uh, much faster and much further than last time because the force involved are that much bigger. Yeah, well, it certainly is a very, very interesting times. Uh, you know, the Chinese and, um, and the Russians, the BRICS, the One Belt, One Road uh, competition, uh, do you see anything there that might interfere with the dollar? And uh, with just about a minute left here yet, if you could comment on that. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, the Chinese build bridges to boost GDP. Now, are the bridges yeah. productive or not? That's a different question. Uh, and, and certainly that can put a bit in our commodities and that can help the banks that lend commodities money. I mean, they can extend the cycle perhaps somewhat and, and you know, use overcapacity they have in China to do something. But you know, is, it, is it productive? Do we think that central planning works, that some apparatchik actor decides to put a road somewhere and creates a market? I mean, lots of lefties think that. Uh, I don't yeah. think that's how the world works. So we'll see. All right, we'll see. We'll have to leave it go with that a topic for another day. Thanks so much for being with us, Dan, and we'll look to do it again sometime soon, hopefully. Thanks for having well, me. Folks, that is all the time we have this week. Next week, um, the title of my show will be Unlike Trump, Kennedy Never Bent a Knee. And you will hear a portion of speeches made by President Eisenhower, warning of the military-industrial complex, uh, which has, in fact, now seemingly taken over our country. At least some people feel that way. And also a speech by President Kennedy to journalists warning about secret societies and the need for journalists to dig deep into seeking the truth. Former trial lawyer Jacob Hornberger will comment on both of those speeches by our former presidents. And Daniel McAdams and Jeff Deist will comment on how our country has ignored both of those speeches to our own detriment. Uh, it should be a very interesting show next week, so I hope you'll join me. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 